In this week's show, our guest is Dr. Eric Kurlander. He's the author of Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich. Dr. Kurlander is professor of history at Stetson University. He's an expert in modern European politics, culture, and society, with a particular emphasis on Germany and France, as well as Nazi Germany and the Second World War. Welcome to our show. I know that this is the topic that you um, discuss with your students, but... Um, why, why did you decide to write this book at this time? Well, to be honest, like most research projects, I, um, it's not, I haven't, I've taught one class that was based on the supernatural. Um, but the reason I started to be interested in this topic is I thought, um, number one, that there's been a resurgence in supernatural thinking in the last 15 or 20 years in the United States and probably across the globe. Um, probably as a post-Cold War phenomenon, I'd say there's been a return of religion, faith, supernatural thinking, occultism, conspiratorial thinking. All of these things seem to have made a comeback. So that influenced me, the kind of resurgence of this. And then obviously I've been in interested intrinsically as a German historian in the supposedly occult roots of Nazism, which... Um, I myself was, was skeptical of until I did the research. That is, I, I thought it's really interesting, and I love you know Captain America movies, but is there really a story there? And so, like most historians, when you're not quite sure um, whether there's a story to tell, you go to the archives, which I did, and I found more and more material. I read more uh, contemporary sources from the 20s and 30s and decided uh, I had a book project. Well, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that there's a higher interest in the supernatural. Um, in, on our show, we discuss um, religious philosophy, we discuss uh, spirituality, all kinds of religious uh, groups, uh, old and new. And to me, it seems that secularism is, is taking a, a hold in, in American society. Uh, when it comes down to conspiracy theories and other things, they always have uh, either a supernatural component or a paranormal or even extraterrestrial uh, bent to them. But um, what do you see uh, and are some of these things related to Nazism? I know that there's been, um, in the spotlight, there's been some neo-Nazi groups or white supremacists or nationalist groups that come to the forefront. Do you see some of those ideas resurfacing in, in today's uh, society? Right. So, well, to start with the, the 20s and 30s, what you had was a period of immense kind of military catastrophe, right, the First World War, followed by social, political, and, and cultural crisis. So already in the 1890s and right before the world, First World War, people were talking about how science and technology and industrialization and globalization are destroying our traditions, religion, spirituality, the home, family life, how different ethnic groups are coming in from Africa and Asia, right? This is already a problem for many white Europeans and Americans in the 1890s and early 1900s. But then you get this war, and everything is destroyed. And in the, the wake of the war, especially in Central Europe, Germany and Austria, you see this kind of reliance, uh, everyone's searching for a kind of new and new answers, new spirituality, a new science that can explain why the world's fallen apart. And occultism, 
esotericism, the border sciences, what I call them, pagan religion or kind of alternative forms of Christianity, uh, the uh, astrology, they all come and fill that spiritual vacuum. And I would argue what you've seen after in the 90s with the end of the Cold War, which kind of destabilized the world, and then with 9-11 and, and so-called, you know, global terrorism and all these wars in, in the Middle East and destabilization, you have a kind of resurgence, the economic crises especially of 2000 and 2007-8, of this kind of spiritual vacuum, questioning of traditions, and as you say, people who have always been religious or are prone to this kind of thinking are saying, oh, the world's becoming too secular, too industrial, too scientific, um, too materialistic. But that is exactly what people were saying in the 1890s and 1920s. And those people, for them, the answers weren't on the left or in the center, right? For many of those people voting for socialists who said, well, we'll just take money from the wealthy and make sure that if you're working hard, you'll have a good life. That wasn't satisfying for a lot of these people who thought in faith-based terms or traditional terms. And liberalism, which was about, you know, well, we'll just compromise and have debates based on science and empirical reality and institutions and democracy, that was alienating for them. But occultism and faith and religion and conspiracy theories and the idea that their race and their culture were, were truly kind of unique going back thousands of years to some kind of mystical past, that made them feel better. And I, I argue that the fascists in Central Europe were very good at appealing to those people by appropriating those ideas. The Indo-Aryan swastika, the idea of a lost race or civilization that would go back to its great traditions, mythology, faith. These are the things that liberalism and socialism couldn't provide. And I would again argue today that liberalism as a kind of centrist, capitalist, rationalist idea, and socialism, which America doesn't even really have, but you do have in Europe, um, those ideas are too, they're too rational, they're too practical, they're, they require too much education and analysis for a lot of people, and they don't have the patience for it. They want faith, they want restoration, they want uh, some overarching conspiracy theory that explains everything, right? And that's why I see parallels between the 20s and 30s and today. Well, let's talk about that because um, there's been many books written about the occult in, in the Nazi regime. And there's been also um, different political and, and religious or, or philosophical groups who have been trying to um, define or um, describe what was happening and sp specifically with Hitler. Um, there's a book that just came out called Hitler's Religion by Richard Weikart, where he he says that, you know, the atheists will say that he was a, a Roman Catholic. The Christians would say that he was a Nietzschean uh, atheist. But what his findings show him is that he was a pantheist and that the law of nature was, was driving the force behind his um, his. Right. Uh, just full, full disclosure, I know Richard well. I've been on panels with him. Uh, I reviewed his book. I've read his book. Um, I agree with some parts of his book. 
So you, if you're explaining it for the audience, please continue. If you're explaining his arguments for my purposes, you don't need to because I already know. Well, so so then my question is, um, let's start with the main guy. Let's let's start with with. Um, I know that is more complicated than just him, and that there was a lot of people under him who were pushing different agendas. But uh, from your findings, was he just using these occult ideas and these uh, neo pagan philosophies to uh, touch the masses, or did he have? Uh, you know, kind of like Indiana Jones, you know, like seeking to tap into something so he make it more powerful and to be able to uh, conquer the world. Right. Great. Okay. So first, let's start with Richard's argument. So I agree with Richard on a few points. One, the Nazis are not Christians in any conventional sense. They're just not. Now, there are some people who voted Nazi who were devout Christians There were pastors and priests who were devout Nazis. But in general, when you look at the 10, 12, 15 most important Nazis, almost none of them are devout Christians. So we can just agree that they're not, by any traditional definition, Christian. And, and I have another colleague named Richard, Richard Steigman Gall, who had, wrote a whole book saying, the Holy Rite, saying that Nazism is really Christian. I, I don't agree. And Richard Weikert and I would agree on this. Um, I also agree with Richard Weikert that of all the Nazi leaders, Hitler is not the most uh, supernatural in inclination. He's certainly not a doctrinaire occultist. Um, he did employ occult people who embraced occult ideas. He joined a party that came out of an occult uh, um, group called the Thule Society. That's where the Nazis started. He checked the right chancellery for death rays using a dowser. That's an occult practice. He read a book on magic by an occultist or parapsychologist named Ernst Schertel. So Hitler, by contemporary standards, meaning at that time, was probably pretty representative of the Nazi party in being interested in some occult and pagan ideas, but not fully invested in them. Because the Nazis were kind of split on that. Many were really interested in different aspects of this. Himmler, Hess, Dare, Rosenberg. Others like Hitler and Goebbels, I would argue, were, as you suggest, more instrumentalist, right? More pragmatic. They knew that lots of Germans, as I just explained, were interested in these ideas and searching for a new faith. They were pragmatic enough to exploit that, right? They never got rid of the swastika. The swastika is an Indo-Aryan occult religious symbol that many folkish and, and right-wing occult groups embraced in the late 19th century. If Hitler were that averse to occultism and paganism, he wouldn't have made the swastika the symbol of his movement, right? So the, the, the short answer is Hitler is not the most invested of all the Nazi leaders, but he's invested enough to manipulate and retain a lot of the symbolism and ideas, and even occasionally embraced them. Um, he did not reject them. And if you compare Hitler and the Nazis to any other mainstream party, the socialists, the liberals, the conservatives, the Catholic Center Party, there's no comparison in the extent to which the Nazis embraced these, what I call the supernatural imaginary. They were the only mass party to make use of these things so overtly. Did that answer your question? 
Yes, but does this supernatural imaginary um, embrace and and work with other uh, ideas? Like, is it syncretistic in the sense of you know using med medieval uh, Christian anti-Semitism and and then using um, social Darwinism to to kind of process their their ideas as well and 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 to show people you know we're being efficient we're we're getting rid of people that that we consider not helpful to society is that uh part of, of the agenda or? well so the it's syncretic in the sense that there's lots of different supernatural ideas floating around i i distill it into three kind of clusters right aereo germanic religion so there's a half dozen or more strains of kind of everything from a kind of Aryan Christianity that Wagner and Paul de la Garde and other kind of folkish thinkers embrace. So the idea that Jesus was an Aryan, not Jewish, and maybe related to Balder from Norse mythology. There's, so there's this kind of Aryan Christianity, German Christianity, all the way to outright paganism, you know, where basically we're Luciferians who worship the God of light and reject traditional Christianity, or we, we worship Thor or Odin. I'm just calling that whole cluster of religious traditions that come out of the 19th century Aero-Germanic religion. And the people who embrace different strains within that structure or that, that kind of cluster didn't agree with each other, right? Like Just like Lutherans and Methodists don't agree with each other. But they did agree that traditional Christianity doesn't work and that secularism doesn't work, right? So that's one of the three pillars. The other is what I would call kind of occult uh, philosophy or occult doctrines like eriosophy, theosophy, anthroposophy, which were overarching holistic doctrines that tried to unite science and religion in one kind of spiritual science, as my colleague calls it, or a science for the soul. And they had all sorts of theories about the development of civilization and astral bodies and cosmic forces and, and Aryan races and extraterrestrials. And these were things that, that, that lots of people appropriated or read about or thought were convincing in one way or another, including many Nazis. And then you've got what I call border science, or they call border science, Grenzwissenschaft, which is a kind of alternative science that I would argue is primarily faith-based, and that would be astrology, clairvoyance, parapsychology, dowsing, um, world ice theory, all these alternative sciences which, which supernaturally inclined people would say they, they actually explain the world better than physics or chemistry or biology or are complements to mainstream physics and biology. So you've got these different clusters, and together they make up what I call the supernatural imaginary. Now, not every problem could be solved that way. So when you bring up something like social Darwinism, my argument in the book is that to, to come up with the really radical, eugenical, and anti-Semitic policies that you see in the Third Reich, which are not scientific, they're not based primarily in, in modern science, but they draw on scientific kind of vocabulary and ideas, kind of pop biology or eugenics or social Darwinism, which is not in any way systematic or related to actual science, or not primarily. And bringing in all these mythological ideas about Jews and subhuman races in Atlantis, 
to justify radical solutions that are unscientific, right? So they wanted to be alliances with the Arabs and the Persians and the Indians and the Japanese. There is no biological or anthropological evidence in the 30s and 40s, which is already pretty close to our own time, that those people were more closely related to the Nordic peoples than Jews in Eastern Europe, right? The Jews in Eastern Europe, we already knew by the 30s and 40s, were a mix of Semitic peoples who had migrated with Germans and, and Slavic people, right? Yet for the Nazis, who were not, not relying on science, they could somehow construe in their mythological view of the world, their supernatural imaginary, that, that Turkmenistan, uh, people living in Turkmenistan and, and Japan and India were lost Aryans or partially Aryan and therefore could be assimilated into the SS. But Jews were these kind of evil, vampiric creatures where even a drop of their blood could corrupt you. You see what I'm saying? What does that have to do with Darwin or biology? That's fantasy. And that's why they came up with these crazy plans that were so much more radical than Western eugenics movements. As bad as they were, they were always hemmed in by mainstream science. You could only go so far, right? Nazis, anything's possible because they're relying on supernatural reasoning. Does that make sense? Yes, um, you know, I'm very troubled because there's still people on YouTube and podcasts saying this kind of stuff. They're still trying to say that uh, Jesus was not a Jew, that he was a, a something. They don't. They they're careful not to talk about Aryans. Like they'll find a way around it. So they'll say, uh, you know, the real Jews are the ones who are part of his caste, and then there's another group that are kind of subhuman and then the you know there's all these conspiracies so um but i'm exactly <laughs> there you go it's, it's just like a hundred years ago except except uh, as uh, as uh, marx once said the first time this this stuff happens is tragedy the second time's a farce you know but anyway go ahead but what worries me i've studied uh bioethics in this idea that um, they were able to sell uh, their policies to very intelligent, well-educated people. And I know that if you tell people what they want to believe, they're willing to shut down their brains and, and, and go along. But they were using, um, you know, medical science and to try to justify some of their, um, their views. So the reason that it's hard to pin it on just the occult or uh, the conspiracies or anti-Semitism is because they, it, it seems like they were um, trying to push their agenda on many levels and under many, justifying themselves in every way possible. Right. Well, see, here's the whole, Tato Adorno many years ago made this point. Occultism is the way that people who aren't quite invested in modern science and empiricism can rationalize the world. It, it seems scientific, but it's still faith-based. So when it's obvious, you can't... Remember the Republican a few years ago who said that women who get raped can't get pregnant? That he, a scientist friend of him, a friend of his, told him that. Or think of all the conservatives who, say, who have all this evidence that there's global warming 
that every scientist in every country, whether they vote for the Christian Democrats in Germany or the Socialists in Germany, or for the Liberal Democrats in Japan or whatever, the scientists are like, yes, there's been huge changes in temperature. It's man-made. We don't know exactly how and when it's going to cause a crisis here versus there. And they're claiming because they've read something that some preacher who got a biology degree wrote that it's actually not true. You have to understand it's not science. Science isn't the problem. It's the exploitation of scientific language or discourse by people of faith who don't really believe in science, right? And that's what I'm arguing many of the Nazis did, what the Nazis did. They, they would use scientific reason. Not every Nazi, of course, believed in supernatural reasoning. There were good biologists and chemists in the Third Reich, and there were eugenicists of the American variety. You're like, well, maybe, you know, different races are different, and, and maybe some are superior and some are inferior. But to get the radical solutions and projects they got, you had to have recourse to faith-based reasoning, to supernatural ideas that couldn't be tested, right? So I do think, while science causes many problems, and science uncontrolled, right, whether it's the nuclear bomb or, or biological engineering, there are dangers with science. Science, provided it remains in the, in the realm of empiricism, testability, and democratic praxis, can be controlled, but you can't control faith-based reasoning. If people who have faith-based reasoning ever have power, and they do now again, they can get away with anything. Because you can't test what they're saying, and they ignore reality, right? Well, if we're gonna if we're gonna go in in, in that um, in that subject, I would like to discuss. And I know that you mentioned that one of your colleagues already wrote a book re regarding uh, Christian involvement in in the Nazi movement. But wouldn't the same uh, premise apply for uh, the Lutherans, uh, Roman Catholics, and, and other groups? who were involved in, you know, I think somehow everybody is complicit because. Yes, this is a great question. And so, yeah, it, and, and I deal with this in the book. I don't t talk a lot about traditional Christian, the churches or traditional Christian theology for a, for a good reason. And what I noticed in doing this research, yes, I do think people who are religious in any way and a faith-based way, not just as a kind of, philosophy to get them through the night, you know, like Reform Judaism or Unitarianism. But, you know, evangelical Christianity participates in, in a lot of the same faith-based problematics of, of what I call the supernatural imaginary. However, at least in Germany in the 30s, traditional Christianity was still connected to long theological, uh, a long kind of theological... Uh, debate about the meaning of the Bible and the meaning of, 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 of life and spirituality in a way that was very thoughtful, that was conservative, that was relatively uh, slow-moving. It was very hard to get away with the kind of radical things that the Nazis wanted to do and be a devout Lutheran or a devout Catholic. Now, there were many people who claimed that they were still Catholic and Lutheran who became Nazis. But I would argue they were abandoning in some ways what European-wide was accepted as traditional Protestantism or Catholicism, including the sanctity of life and the fact that the Jews, for all their problems, are still kind of an important 
people and the history of Christianity, you couldn't really have it both ways. With the alternative kind of Christianity, the German Christianity and the Aero-Germanic religion and occultism that the Nazis appropriated, you could, you could argue using that that Jesus wasn't Jewish, that the Jews are evil vampiric monsters, that killing people's okay if they're a subhuman race. So I would say that while traditional Christianity certainly didn't help because they compromised with the Nazis all the time because they hated the left and they hated liberals, right? And that's not the subject of my book. Um, so Christianity in Germany uh, helped facilitate fascism. And here I agree with my colleague who wrote that book about Holy Right. The Christians were not as a group, as many conservatives tried to claim after World War II, oppositional to Nazism, but they were not the core constituency either, if that makes sense. Well, um, yeah, we interviewed uh, Dr. Susanna Heschel, and in her research, it, it shows that they were. And it, and it was based on how easily um, they were willing to turn the other way or even, you know, they were fighting over each other to have the swastika on the altar next to the cross. They were, because when it was all said and done, it was, they were trying to benefit from the Nazi regime and, and there was no concern other than a couple of people for a non religionist Like they were just trying to advance or at least, you know, for the churches to be uh, kept as they were. And then the, the foreigners or the people who weren't considered true Germans got persecuted left and right. And it was people who went out of their way, but compared to the, the massive body of German citizens, is not what a lot of Christians would say that you mentioned that it's not that they were in opposition. A lot of them were actually in support. So I know it's a different subject, but um, it concerns me that um, just like uh, in, in America, when we talk about the Wiccan community or we talk about uh, even Satanists or people like that, it's easy to put a, a lot of the negative stuff from the medieval times. It's easy to put it on them and say, well, uh, the occult people are the ones who have strange views about other cultures or the ones who would support uh, some type of lunatic like Hitler because of the some of their views. But what's scary about what happened in Germany is that it was the mass public. It wasn't the, Fr the French took over, but the French uh, became very uh, tolerated and accepted. Which is why we have to differentiate from the Nazi party the Nazi party from the mass of the population and the mass of the population from devout Christians. So everyone agrees, Max Weber and all sorts of historians and sociologists, that traditional Christianity, and not only in Germany, by the way, uh, there's, a, there's a secularization, but, but I, that's not even the right word. There's a, a disenchantment of the world in terms of traditional Christianity. So other than the Catholic party, which had its roots in in a Catholic milieu that was not purely about religion, but also about kind of tradition and region. In the 20s, you really have a decline of organized Protestantism. People were still devoutly Lutheran, pastors who were devoutly Lutheran. Yes, they're anti-Semitic and nationalist, but many of them, as we know, you know, formed the Confessing Church, not because they liked Jews and wanted to protect Jews. They didn't like Jews either, and they liked you know, nationalism, and they wanted to get back their empire. But they were devout Christians. So when the 
Nazis started saying, well, you know, we don't really want the Old Testament and Jews can't be baptized. They drew the line. And that's the point I'm making is that the Christians didn't create Nazism, but because they were conservative, nationalist, and anti-Semitic and cynical, many of them went along for the ride. But that's, that's an important distinction because my colleague Richard Steinman Gall and Susanna Heschel to some degree are arguing that Christianity is intrinsic to the Nazi project. I'm arguing that Christians as conservative nationalists who, who don't like liberalism and socialism, were, they compromise with the Nazis the same way the Nazis compromise with them. That's really bad, right? You see that now in the Republican Party. How is it that Christians are supporting Donald Trump? You know, let's not even get into his authenticity as a Christian. How are they supporting a party that's done so many, you know, you could argue horrible or contradictory things when it comes to following Jesus's teachings? They've just made made peace with it. Well, they they oppose abortion, and they talk about Jesus a lot, so we're going to vote for them anyway. So I would argue it's more like that. It's not that the I don't want to get off in, into the theology of, of Christians in the Third Reich. It's not the focus of my book. Um, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say there's as close a cor- correlation um, correlation between fascism and Christianity. Certainly not in Germany, as as you might be suggesting. I would just say that Christians in general at that time were not supportive of liberalism, pluralism, ethnic diversity, right? And since the Nazis were against those things, they said better the Nazis than the left. Does that make sense? Yes. And well, let me ask you. Um, in and I guess uh, based on on your premise uh, of the occult um, roots of the Nazi movement, is is there a, a, a messianic uh, figure within occultism? I know that occultism is kind of like the new new age movement. It's made up of a lot of different ideas, and it's really easy to interpret it any way you want because it's like an amalgam of of different different concepts but there's a book that i read called the mind of hitler and in that book what it seemed that from his writings that he had a a, a messianic complex and that he in a sense felt that he was going to be the the king of the world and somehow bring bring about uh the this millennial kingdom is that uh, kind of like a mixture between uh, Judeo-Christian ideas and the occult um, premise? Uh, yeah, so short answer, yes. And let me unpack what you just said, because you raise a lot of really interesting points. So one, I want to come back to a point you made earlier about Wiccan traditions. Uh, Himmler and many SS leaders and a lot of Nazis raised in this occult milieu, supernatural imaginary, they truly believe that what the Catholic Church called witchcraft in the Middle Ages and therefore tried to eliminate through the Inquisition was actually an Ur-Germanic religion practiced in southern France and Norway and Germany and parts of Poland and also in Tibet, right? And this Ur-Germanic Indo-Aryan religion, which believed in spells and forest, you know, spirits and all this stuff, because it was... Indo-Aryan, and because the Catholic Church, according to these Nazi thinkers, was just an extension of the Jews, because that was the only way the Jews could rule the world, is through you know, Christianity and manipulating Aryans through making them passive and Christian. They did argue that witchcraft, they didn't use the word witchcraft, right? They wouldn't have called it witchcraft. They would have said what the 
Christians called witchcraft was really a Luciferian or Nordic religion, Indo-Aryan religion, that they wanted to destroy. I just want to throw that out there and say there is this kind of tradition. So there are New Age corollaries to that now. There are right-wing occult groups who recognize that history in the Third Reich and who see that as part of resuscitating Aryan culture across Europe, rejecting Christianity and embracing this kind of pre-Christian pagan European culture. So just there is that tradition, right? Um, to come back to the idea, though, of messianic belief in the Third Reich, uh, I have a colleague named David Redless who wrote a book called Hitler's Millennial Reich, which shows all the millenarianism throughout the Nazi party, Christian and non-Christian. My argument, for example, why some Nazis, including Hitler at times, get angry at occultists, because there are moments in the Third Reich where they're arresting occultists, is not because they disagree with the epistemology. The, the border scientific thinking and kind of bizarre, areosophic, ideological lens that many Nazis use to see the world, that many Nazis, including Hitler at times, share. What they don't like, and this is why your point was so good, is having an alternative messianic figure. Because their party is not based on a bunch of intelligent people debating points of policy. Their party is organized around a messianic belief in Hitler and the Fuhrer, and when you have, to take the most prominent example in my book, someone like Rudolf Steiner, have you heard of Rudolf Steiner? I think so, was he a part of the propaganda machine? No, no, he's, a, he's the founder of Anthroposophy. In America, you have something called Waldorf schools, have you ever heard of those? He founded those, right, and they became very popular. So his occult doctrine of Anthroposophy was based on the idea that he had come up with this better occultist view of the world than, than Madame Blavatsky and the theosophists, who were too airy-fairy, didn't have enough science and education and, and politics. And so he invented his own occult doctrine called anthroposophy. He was kind of the messianic figure at the head of it. And one reason that anthroposophy was, was persecuted at times in the Third Reich is because they didn't like the fact that anthroposophists saw their messianic leader as Rudolf Steiner not Hitler. So the Nazis would go after any kind of what they called sectarianism, which literally meant for them any group, religious, occultist, or otherwise, Freemasons, who instead of worshiping Hitler and their own symbology or their own appropriation of occult symbology, they were into their own occult or religious sect. The propaganda that, that Hitler was pushing through his writings was that, that he was the, the one who was going to bring... Um, the, the kingdom to the Germans and and pretty much opposing Christianity, opposing Judaism, opposing everybody, and that he was the only one that had the answer? Yes. And part of that was his authentic faith, and part of it is he recognized that. And we have there's lots of good research, including my own, that shows the real desire for a kind of Fuhrer, a great leader, right, even among liberals, though they, they understood they didn't want some mystical religious leader. They wanted a, a Gustav Stresemann or some kind of charismatic, you know, Obama-like or Reagan-like figure. But everyone realized that democracy is breaking down because of all these socioeconomic crises and foreign policy problems. And a great leader could, could maybe unite people or transcend it. And on the, on the focus right, on the Focus, occultist, paganist, right, 
that leader had a mystical kind of quality. Even before Hitler was the leader, there was a desire to have leaders. You know, the, the paramilitary werewolf movement had a leader. The um, German Social Party had a leader. A lot of these groups wanted to have a strong leader and, ha and believed in kind of quasi-religious rites and symbols and, and black uniforms with skulls and everyone having ranks and following their, their leader into, you know, battle if necessary. Hitler just kind of crystallized all of that better than others, right? There were rival Führers, to put it another way. Is there any um, truth to him using his artistic uh, knowledge? You know, he was he was an artist before he became an uh, orator and provocateur. It, was there anything um, in your research about him using the symbols of the occult, uh, other than the swastika, to uh, kind of galvanize people and, and do these extravagant parades and and things to, to kind of use the symbolism to, to kind of hypnotize them uh, to follow him? Well, so two things. One, uh, and I, I talk about this in the book, but a colleague of mine named Samuel Kona has written about kind of the paganist roots of Nazi religion. Um, there's all sorts of evidence that in the 20s, the Nazis, and well into the 30s, not just in the 20s, I'm just showing that early on, they would actually organize solstice festivals using Ariosophic and, and Nordic mythological traditions um, to, to have like a German Christmas, meaning non-Christian Christmas, or summer solstice, where they would play on all of these different paganist, Nordic, uh, occult uh, beliefs. They would go to places like the Ecksternsteine, uh, these kind of... Um, we know that there were Neolithic religious... It was a Neolithic religious site, but Himmler and, and, and Nordic kind of religionists before him believed that the, the great Germanic um, religious leaders would go to the Ecksternsteine and carry out, you know, um, uh, festivals in honor of Thor and Odin or the Wevelsberg Castle or, you know, so th there was this whole kind of pantheon of, of figures and traditions that the Nazis used and Hitler at least tolerated that came into these nighttime festivals at Nuremberg or the solstice traditions that the Nazis tried to set up. Hitler himself was agnostic. Again, I don't think Hitler had a systematic view of how best to appropriate all these different religious beliefs. He allowed Himmler and Rosenberg and Goebbels and Walter Dare and Walter von Schirach, who was head of the German youth movement, who, and who actually invited the werewolves and these other, the Artaman and these other occult groups to join the German youth movement in 1933. He let them work out the details. Um, Hitler wasn't, as an artist, in fact, the, the, mo the research I've seen, which is most convincing, is that Hitler, because he watched so many Wagner operas and was really into staging, he did think of his work or his own um, role as a political leader as a kind of as a kind of actor on a, on a giant stage. And he liked to have large stages with, 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 you know, profound lighting and shadows and, and Wagnerian imagery. But I don't know that in terms of the content, he was making a lot of decisions. It was more of the German word would be incinerung of the putting the mise en scène, right? That's what Hitler worried about. The more interesting details, I think he left to other Nazis, if that makes sense. 
But um, where where do we draw the line between you know what they did as their own thing and what actual pagan religion or Wiccan or even um, some of these um, kind of strange philosophies are all about? Because there, you know, people can can believe anything they want, and they can have uh, views about aliens and and the earth being hollow and all kinds of stuff. But where does it cross the line between uh, you know, just their their personal beliefs and actually uh, hurting others. Uh, because, you know, the, the Wiccan community would complain that all these stories about witches and them being satanic and, and torturing or killing people, that all that stuff is people that um, they put that on them as, as being scared of the devil or wanting to be pariah. So... When, when does it cross the line and it becomes something else and something that is actually very morbid and, and destructive? This is why history matters and context matters and theology and sociology and those kinds of fields are helpful but also sometimes harmful. Because what I show in my book and what I think any good historian would argue is that the manifestation of occultism was very different even in the 20s and 30s across Europe. So Alistair Crowley was primarily concerned with having sex with as many women as possible, right? He was a member of the OTO, the Order of New, Te Order of New Templars, just like Lanson Liebenfels in Austria, who claims to have met Hitler and influenced Hitler and created Ariosophy, this extremely racist occult doctrine. So maybe Lanson Liebenfels and Crowley were members of the same occult group, But Crowley didn't care what or Aryan races were doing or, you know, he wasn't particularly interested in politics. And the degree he was, I think he spied on behalf of the British. So I guess he was pro-democracy. You know, so my argument would be that you can't just say if you're an occultist, you're a fascist. You have to look at the context. In Germany and Austria, between the 1890s and 1930s, many of the people who were the most interested in what I call border science, occultism, and pagan religion happened to also be folkish in thinking, meaning they wanted to resuscitate a greater Germanic empire, and they loved Thor, and they liked the idea of root races. That's not true at every stage of history in every country when you talk about Wiccans or New Age. There's plenty of cosmopolitan, lapsed Jews and Catholics in California who read what Rudolf Steiner wrote and ignore the stuff when he makes says nasty things about Jews or root races, and just talk about, you know, how cool it would be to, to farm using biodynamic agriculture. So I'm not arguing across time and space, everyone who believes in Wiccan or, or New Age or Anthroposophy is prone to fascism. <clears throat> I am arguing, though, that people who have those kinds of beliefs and transpose them from their private kind of, you know, way of getting through the night, as John Lennon would put it, to the public realm, to politics and society, that's the first step that's dangerous. And then when those beliefs correlate with authoritarian folkish ideas, alt-right ideas, that's when you start to get that peculiar cocktail that breeds the kind of fascism we saw in the 20s and 30s. So I'd say it's already dangerous if you're, you're new age, your yoga, your interest in all these things. It's not your what you do on the weekends to center your mind, but it starts to become your way of viewing the world, that's, that's problematic because you've left reason and empiricism behind. 
And then when you start reading Steiner again, or some other occult, and going, oh yeah, there are seven root races, and, and maybe the Lemurians were the, did mate with, with aliens and create Atlantis, and maybe racial miscegenation is why Atlantis collapsed. And you know what? Maybe Himmler was right that, you know, the greatest races were the Aryan races. When you start making those leaps, that's when it gets really dangerous. Does that make sense? You really have to look at the historical context, the geographical context, the sociopolitical context. And unfortunately, in America today, the knowledge of history and context is so superficial that someone who wants to make an argument that the Nazis are Christian, well, they can make it, because lots of bishops, as you point out, are Catholic leaders or people who claim to be Christian supported the Nazis. Now they're, now they're Christian, right? You want to say that occultism is inherently evil? You point out all the ways that the Nazis were interested in occultism. My argument is not that occultism is inherently evil. It's that Austro-German occultism in that period tended to correlate with people who had folkish ideas, and that people who had folkish and occult ideas tended to make their way to the Nazi party. That doesn't mean that that's the problem today. Does that make sense? Yeah, so do you see your book as a warning for what's happening now? Um, there's an article from The Atlantic where it talks about the, the person who termed the alt-right being interested in aliens and all kinds of other stuff in psychic powers. So do you, do, in the book you do that, or, or you're saying that for our audience? In the epilogue, I didn't want to make the book about contemporary American or European politics. In the epilogue, I spend a couple pages pointing out the ways in which, as we started the conversation, a, a recourse to supernatural thinking, to, to the supernatural imaginary as it currently exists. I would argue uh, the supernatural imaginary in the United States today is more heavily Christian than it was in the 20s and 30s in Germany and Austria, but it's not traditionally Christian, right? One of the things that worries me the most about Christianity in America today is how many people who say they're Christian cannot tell you their religious tradition. They can't tell you whether they're Methodist, Catholic, Lutheran, what it would mean to be a Lutheran, what are the theological distinctions and subtleties of being Lutheran versus Episcopalian. The sheer fact that they just call themselves Christian because they have faith in some vague conception of Jesus that's the kind of unmoored, unreflective, faith-based reasoning which correlates, back then in my mind, but also today, to also believing in parapsychology, ghosts, um, conspiracy theories, the government hiding aliens. All of these things correlate. And there are political scientists and sociologists who show these correlations. And then when you have a candidate who lies or makes completely contradictory arguments, whether it's Marine Le Pen or, or Trump or um, Gerrit Wilders in the Netherlands, or even if they make a rational argument but are at the same time drawing on a kind of racist subtext that is not based on any nuanced view of how society actually works, these people don't know how to discern the difference between reality and fantasy. And, and so it's never, the supernatural imaginary, every society has one. It's often very privatized. Uh, I would argue, in fact, that many people, the way they, they deploy their yearning for faith and the supernatural is they do it in safe ways by reading Harry Potter or watching Game of Thrones or playing Dungeons and Dragons. 
And that's the fantasy, and they recognize it's a fantasy, but wouldn't it be nice if there were dragons and vampires and angels? It's the people who really believe that stuff, who want to see a religious text is absolutely true. They're the ones who are dangerous. And I do see a recourse of that kind of thinking in Europe and America, and obviously in, in the Muslim world. I'm not here to say that fundamentalist Islam is somehow you know, a safe doctrine either. It, it's, it's a quintessentially faith-based, fa- fantasy-driven view of the world. It's just not the same as evangelical Christianity, right, or, or occultism, right? They're all faith-based. They all should have n- no business in, in a modern pluralist society when you're trying to debate health care or foreign policy. And yet, as Atlantic, I'm sure, suggests, people who have these ideas are getting involved in politics and society, and that's scary. There's another article from Jacobin Magazine that says that, you know, there's this reassurance, uh, reassur- that now people are talking about aliens, anti-Semitism, and, and that the way to combat um, alt-right conspiracy theory kind of thinking is for the left to return to the Enlightenment and and use, I guess, science and and good philosophy to counter that. But I see that there's a lot of um, magical thinking and um, kind of destructive stuff coming from the left too. So uh, I, I'm I'm worried that um, we're not really getting to the heart of the matter uh, in modern day politics. Like instead of of trying to figure out ways for everybody to work together, they just they keep pol- polarizing each other and demonizing each other. And was that happening in the 1930s? Well, certainly. The 20s was the most polarized time in European history, arguably, since the French Revolution. You had, you know, already before World War I, you had a more radical political spectrum than America, right? We, we never had a militant socialist movement in America that was the dominant working movement. The workers were always, in many ways, co-opted by the Democratic Party. In Europe, already be, before World War I, you had a a socialist party that de- declared its support of Marxist doctrine. So in theory, they wanted a revolution against capitalism. You had that in France. Germany actually had the largest one in Europe. You had it in Russia. And then on the right, you had another thing that we didn't have already before World War I. You had a radical right, um, not very strong in Britain, but in France and Germany and Austria and Hungary, a radical anti-Semitic right that completely rejected democracy, that wanted to get rid of Jews and Poles and immigrants, so that Europeans already had to deal with that polarization. And then you get the war, and the war exacerbates it. So now the socialists are seen as too moderate because they don't want to immediately take over. They're too patient. So the communists form their own party. We're just going to take over now, right? And the only place it worked was Russia at the time. But there's communists running around Germany and and France scaring everyone. And then on the right, these radical right-wing parties that got 5% of the vote in the 1890s, these anti-Semitic parties that were talking about maybe shipping the Jews to Palestine or Madagascar, now they're getting, by the late 20s, 10, 20, or eventually the Nazis get 33% of the vote. So you talk about polarization not only was it radical in Europe at that time, they had good reason for it because they had two huge crises at the same time. They had a devastating world war where 10 million people died, right? And whole cities and countries were destroyed back to the Stone Age. And they had a Great Depression. Two of these horrible things happened at once. What scares me about today 
is we don't have either. The stock market is at a record high. Unemployment is near record low. Unemployment's four and a half percent, right? Stock market's at twenty-two thousand. It was at seven or eight thousand just eight or nine years ago. So I, this is going to get away from my book, but and and I don't want to. I have a comment on your your uh, suggestion that the enlightenment might be part of the problem, but I would just say that our real problem right now, and it probably is always the case. If you want to combat what the Marxists would call false consciousness and what is occultism or faith-based reasoning, if not a false consciousness, you have to give people the education, the jobs, the stability in their life to think through problems. And the inequality in this country in particular, the amount of wealth controlled by the small, a very small group of people, the way that even the Democratic Party is controlled by corporate uh, interests, you know, Obama was afraid to let the Bush tax cuts lapse, which were already lower than Reagan's tax cuts. And Obama was supposedly a left-wing crazy person, right? So you can't get people who are already undereducated, scared, and confused to think more in a more nuanced, fair, and balanced way, as you're suggesting, when they're so desperate and so alienated. So the the problem, I would say, is this faith-based thinking just exacerbates the polarization. And I don't think it's as bad on the left. We, First of all, we don't have a left. America has no left. What is a left? I would like you to answer that because I hear that all the time. If both sides could just get along. We have a center-right, that's the Democratic Party. They're a right-wing party in any international comparison. Super low taxes, get all their money from rich people. Right. And then you have a, a right wing slash far right wing party, the Republicans. We have no left. What's the left? A friend of mine who has a show uh, in Houston called The Monitor, he, um, he says the same thing. He comes from from Egypt and he lived in Europe. And he says that the left in Europe is a real left and the left here. It, they're just playing around. My my premise regarding moderates and people who are, are not thinking in those like extreme terms is that when it's all said and done we have to work together like i know it sounds kind of like a um appeasing um and it's got a lot of what obama was doing trying to work with both people and stuff like that but i feel there's not a a sense of you know we're all in it together and you know the reason that some of us are here or people were born here and, and believe in the system is because it's a it's a system that that works and that we can all you know, debate vigorously, we can, you know, vote, and it actually counts to a certain point. Like, I'm not as as, um, pessimistic as some of my anarchist friends or some of my more left-leaning friends, because I feel that compared to other countries, uh, with all the the negative stuff that happens in in this country, there is some semblance of of progress and, and moving forward. And of course, the, the involvement of, of the corporations and, and the rich people trying to hug all the money and stuff like that. But compared to other places, there there is a little bit of hope that I see. And and, and I struggle with this idea that, you know, it's, it's just all crazy. And, and if it's like that, then I don't know why people even participate. I'm not saying it's all crazy. I'm saying, what if Trump actually was a fascist? I don't actually believe he is. I think he he did fascist things to get elected. He talked about nationalism and war and and Second Amendment solutions and 
and made anti-Semitic or, or subtly anti-Semitic and racist remarks to get Americans to vote for him, he knew like that stuff. He realized in Republican primary, you know, the, the more crazy you are, the, and he wanted to win, because that's what he's about is winning. He doesn't have any vision for America. I'm going to win by saying these crazy things. And he had people around him, like Manafort and Bannon, telling him to say these crazy things. I think Bannon actually believes some of that stuff. He got elected. He's not a fascist. But people around him, I think, are equivalent to what we would call fascism. We can define what fascism is, if you'd like. If someone like Trump, who actually believed the stuff he was saying, and who was an effective politician, with, or effective leader, which he's not, he's incapable of managing our unwieldy legislative system and getting anything done, which is good. good. He has not really ruined anything yet. But what if Trump wasn't just a blowhard who wants to win, probably a lifelong Democrat, and actually had the views of Bannon and the political ability of Marine Le Pen. America would have just voted in the equivalent of a Mussolini or, or whatever the Hungarian fascist leader is. I'm not going to say Hitler because we don't have anyone that radical. We would have just voted that person in because Hillary Clinton wasn't a sexy candidate, even though she was the most qualified candidate we've had in decades, and is center-right on any issue. She's certainly not left. And yet, you realize how scary that is for a, for a historian? And we don't even have a crisis. Again, the stock market is at record highs. Unemployment's record lows. And people are so desperate they had to give Trump a chance. This is very scary stuff. I don't, I'm, and I'm glad you're optimistic. And I would argue it was facilitated, in a way, by supernatural thinking. Because when you talk to people... And you say, what exactly in Trump's platform is going to help you afford health care better or get you a better job or help your small business or resolve problems in the Middle East? You can, do you know how frustrated I live in central Florida, right? Well, you live, you live in Tennessee, so it's that much different. Uh, try to get someone to explain to you in detail exactly what a vote for Trump and the Republican Party was going to do to improve their lives, other Americans' lives, and the international situation. They can't do it. And I would argue they can't do it because they left, they lost the plot a long time ago in having to justify their political views based on empirical reasoning and data. So you're very optimistic, but until those people, I don't care whether you call them left or right, can come to the table and explain how X policy is going to fix X problem, how is it that we're going to resolve anything? 